Um, my name is Matt, if we haven't met before, um, one of the leaders here. As you can see, we're a small group this morning because everyone likes to enjoy the sunshine just uh, because this is the time of year to do it because the sad news is that winter is just around the corner, which I think every time I say winter, I get this like kind of post-traumatic stress thing because of last year's winter, and I'm really not looking forward to it. But uh, we're super glad that you're here gathered with us this morning. And like I said, my name is Matt. And we are uh, in a series called Why Gather, and we wanted to take five weeks to take a break from our normal teaching series in the Gospel of Matthew and really talk about why we do what we do on a, on a given week. So why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we spend time uh, opening up the scriptures together? And, and I want to be as clear as possible as we start and to say something, that, something we've said before, but we haven't really spent a ton of time talking about it which is the fact that the reason we gather is for the communion table. What we do as a church is come together around the bread and the cup. This is the reason that we're here. And so the the main reason is not to sing songs, though singing is really important and it's it's helpful for us as we prepare to come to the table. And And it's the right response in worship for what Jesus has done. But that's not the main thing. And the main thing is not to listen to someone talk and teach for 30 to 45 minutes Though that's hopefully usually pretty helpful and it's important, that's not the main reason we're here. And just like we talked about last week, if you were here, uh, it's important to gather together with a diverse group of people uh, with diverse gifts like a body coming together. That's a crucial part of being a church, but that's not the main reason we're here. We come together around the bread and the cup because we believe that that is the central expression of what Jesus has done. And this, the table, is the central part of what we do in our Sunday gatherings. And so we're going to spend today talking about that. And if I say anything wrong, Tracy's legs are long enough, he's just going to kick me, I think. That's why he moved to the front row. (laughs) So um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 22. And I'll give a little bit of background before we get started. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis 22. I'm going to move backwards, away from Tracy. Uh, before we get there, in order to answer that question, why is communion the central piece of what we do as a church, I want to weave together three themes that we see in Scripture. And these are three themes of many. So honestly, we could spend week after week talking about this, um, but we're going to spend one Sunday doing this. And so pick these three that we want to weave together. The the first is sacrifice and the idea of the, the Jewish sacrificial system. The second theme we want to look at is the Passover, which is when God redeems Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then the third thing is uh, the Messiah's banquet. So we'll take each of these in turn, look at them one at a time, and hopefully in the end have a better understanding of why we do what we do and why we come together at the communion table every single week. So the first is sacrifice. So that's where we're going to get to Genesis 22. For, for many of us, we would be able to say that the communion table is a place where we come because we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've, you've probably heard that phrase used. You've probably heard it, fra- it phrased like that here. And I think normally we understand one aspect of sacrifice, which is this idea that Jesus died a death that we deserved in our place. We, we get that idea of sacrifice, that sense of it, but we don't necessarily understand 
how the word sacrifice functioned in a Jewish worldview. And so for Jesus, who was sacrificed in a Jewish world, we need to understand a little bit of that context historically uh, because as the author of Hebrew tells us, Hebrews tells us, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So we want to kind of have an understanding of what Jewish sacrifice is all about, which is what gets us to Genesis 22. So in Genesis 22, if you're familiar with the story, Genesis 22 is about a father named Abraham who is asked to sacrifice his one and only son. And so Abraham is this man, and in Genesis 12, he's told he's going to be given land and descendants. But he doesn't have children until very later on in life, and he doesn't have a legitimate son until he's really old. And then, finally, once he finally has a son, God has the audacity to command him to sacrifice his one and only son. And so that's where we pick up in Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, uh, we don't have really time to get into the, the kind of craziness of this command because Abraham has been waiting his entire life for this son and the son finally comes, and he's growing up, and then God commands him. He thinks everything's finally coming together, and then God commands him to give him up, to offer him as a sacrifice, as an offering back to God. And it suffices to say at this point that that's a difficult thing that God asks Abraham to do, but Abraham embraces it, and he takes Isaac up the mountain. So if we pick up in verse 7, Isaac realizes that something funky is going on. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So they continue up the hill, and Abraham binds Isaac. He ties Isaac up, and just as he's about to kill Isaac, God stops him. God stops him and then he says in verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is a weird story. This is an odd and crazy story about God asking for human sacrifice. You're totally justified to, to approach it as a weird story. It's not normal, and it's not meant to be normal. It's actually meant to stick out for a number of reasons. One reason it's meant to stick out in your minds is because if you know the story, Abraham's been promised these descendants— and the thought has to come to your mind, if Abraham kills Isaac, how is he going to have any more kids? It's just not possible. It's meant to kind of challenge the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. I'm going to give you descendants. And yet God then asks him to kill his one and only descendant. But Abraham trusts God, and this becomes this paradigm 
of what Abraham's trust and faith in God is like. And so he trusts that if God asks him to do it, God's going to provide another descendant. So that's one reason this story is meant to stick out. It's meant to ask those questions. But this story is also meant to stand out because of how it shadows what God will do in Jesus. It gives us a shadow and a picture of what God will do in Jesus. Because God is not asking Abraham to do something that he himself, that he is unwilling to do himself. So I'll say that again. God is not asking Abraham to do something that he is unwilling to do himself. What I mean by that is that in Jesus, God will sacrifice his own one and only son. And I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of interesting things going on in the text. Abraham tells Isaac that God will provide a lamb for the offering. So let me ask you a question. In Genesis 22, does God provide a lamb? No, he doesn't. In English, the words ram and lamb are really similar. But it's not as if God was like reading the labels and sent a ram instead of a lamb because he misread it. They're very different words in Hebrew. And what this presents for a reader is to say, well, Abraham said there's going to be a lamb, but a ram showed up. That's kind of weird. But that's where this interesting note in verse 14 comes into play. Because in verse 14, Abraham refers to this mountain as the place where God will provide. And that can be either in the present tense or in the future tense. And the common reading is that Abraham is pointing forward to something. So if you read again in verse 14, you see that there's two notes there. One is that Abraham says this is the mountain where God will provide. And then there's a note from a later writer that says, to this day, so sometime after the story, to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So Moses, later, as he's pulling together these stories and writing them down, he says, many years after the fact, that it's still said about this mountain, God will provide on this mountain. So Abraham points forward and Moses points forward to a day when God will provide a lamb on that mountain. Tradition, a Jewish tradition, tells us that that mountain is Jerusalem, is where Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, which is pretty cool, right? There's this story in Genesis that points forward to the day when Jesus will be the lamb that God provides on the mountain. And, and that kind of helps us uh, with this third reason that the, the passage is meant to stand out. Um, here's this quote from Matthew Levering, who's a, he's a Catholic theologian, um, but he's, he's doing research about how the Jewish understanding of sacrifice informs how we understand communion. He says, Likewise, Genesis 22.2, combined with 2 Chronicles 3.1, indicates for the rabbis both that the place where Abraham went to sacrifice his son was none other than the mountain on which Solomon built his temple, so Jerusalem, and the akedah, which is the Hebrew word for binding, is the origin of the daily lamb offerings. So this this passage is the origin of the sacrificial system. And less directly, but more portentously, which I had to look up, which is why I put it in there, means significantly, of the Passover sacrifice as well. So we're going to talk about Passover in a second. But the point of this quote is that what we just read in Genesis 22 is the basis of the sacrificial system. It's the basis of the Passover sacrifice. So in the Jewish mindset, this is kind of the the basic understanding of how sacrifice works. So there's a lot going on there. And remember, we're going to eventually get to communion, 
But in order to get there and understand how Jesus has been sacrificed for us, we need to understand that Jewish understanding of sacrifice. So here's a few things about sacrifice. One, sacrifice is understood as an obedient response to God. Abraham is responding with this bold obedience, willing to sacrifice his one and only son. The Passover, which we're going to talk about in a second, is a response to God's commands. The daily sacrifices in temple worship were response to God's commands. So sacrifice is obedient response to God. Second, sacrifice reminds humanity of the heinous nature of sin. So not all sacrifices were made in order to make amends for sin, but most were. And they are a gross thing to see an animal die from having its throat slit. And thankfully, I have never had to have that experience of killing an animal with my bare hands, but I've been to places where they do, and it's bloody and it's gross. And the, the point of that bloody, gross sacrifice is to show the humans who participate in it just how bloody and gross and heinous and disgusting sin is. Because the only fitting response for sin is that heinous, gross act of seeing an animal die with your bare hands. The blood, the life and death, the, the sacrificial system is meant to represent to us how heinous sin actually is. But third, and I think most importantly for our conversation today, is that sacrifice actually leads to communion. And what I be my communion in this sense is just the English words common union. So most of the sacrifices, some of the sacrifices were completely burned up in the fire. But most often when you sacrifice something, you got to eat it later. And most families weren't going to eat a whole lamb by themselves or weren't going to eat a whole animal by themselves. So it was this communal thing that came together because you would eat the sacrifice that was made. So this happens in the Passover, but it happens in other sacrifices as well. So it brings people together at a common meal for common feasting on something that you normally don't get to eat. We, not all of us because I'm a vegan, but many of us eat meat all the time. But for ancient people, eating meat was a special thing, a unique thing that happened when you made sacrifice. And this sacrifice not only leads to communion among people and fellowship among people, but it also leads to communion between people and God. Read this this passage from Exodus 29. This is a passage about the daily lamb offering. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives. I have no clue what a hin is. And a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as the morning, a pleasing aroma of food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. This is God speaking. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So sacrifice was obedient response to God and it reminds humanity of the heinous nature of sin and it leads to community, to feasting, to meeting, not only between people and people, but also between people and God. So I think you may be starting to see where we're going with this. But this first thread that we want to just look at is realizing that communion is about realizing and remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. 
It, it's the sacrifice that we remind ourselves of during communion because Jesus' sacrifice is this sacrifice once and for all. And Jesus' Jesus' sacrifice was this perfect example of obedience because Jesus was the perfectly obedient one. He was blameless, he was sinless, and he offered himself obediently as a sacrifice. And and Jesus' sacrifice is also this clear depiction of how heinous sin is because Jesus died this really terrible death. The scriptures tell us that he was beaten beyond recognition. And the act of being crucified was a painful, very painful way to die. And lastly, and most importantly, I think, it's Jesus' sacrifice that opens up the way for communion, for unity between God and man. But it also paves the way for this new creation where humanity can be at peace with itself. A a place and a new creation where every tribe and nation and tongue can come together and worship God in unison. So what we see and remember in communion is the sacrifice of Jesus. That's one thread. The second one is Passover. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 12. And like with sacrifice, we could spend weeks talking about Passover uh, and the connections between Passover and Jesus' sacrifice, but we're just gonna, we're gonna look at two things. Because Passover gives us, just like the story of Isaac gives us shadows of what happens in Jesus, Passover does the same sort of thing. So if you remember Exodus 12, uh, if you've seen Prince of Egypt maybe, what's going on in Exodus, that's a good movie, right? Uh, What's going on in Exodus is God tells Moses, hey, I want my people to come out of Egypt to worship me. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and says, let my people go. I know a lot of you are singing the song in your head now. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, yes, no. Yes, no. He always says no. He keeps saying no. And what happens is what's later called the plagues. But uh, God is making judgments on the gods of Egypt. So there's, there's a god of the Nile in Egyptian thought. And so God turns the Nile into blood, saying, I'm more powerful than the god of the Nile. And the Egyptians have this god of the sun. And so God darkens the sunlight to say, hey, I'm stronger than your God of the sun. There's this time, time and again where God demonstrates these judgments against the, the gods of Egypt. And then we get to Exodus 12 and what's called the Passover. So God says, I'm, I'm going to sweep in and I'm actually going to kill the firstborn of everyone in the land. And the way to, to have the angel of death pass over is to do this in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You need to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So you need to get RSVPs. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And then goes on to explain what else they're supposed to do. They're supposed to break, bake unleavened bread. They're going to eat the lambs. They're going to roast it. And they're going to eat it with all their stuff ready to go because as soon as this happens, they're going to leave Egypt. 
Now, what happens after this is the feast of Passover is celebrated year, year in and year out. Ever since that day, it's celebrated to this day by Jewish communities. And what is uh, called a Passover Seder, that's the, the word for the dinner. And in Jewish communities too today, if you go to a Passover Seder, there's about 50 pages worth of instructions and prayers that you go through when you're having a Passover meal together. Jesus, when he institutes communion, is having a Passover Seder with his disciples. And so Passover gives us this perfect transition to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. So one more passage, I think I have a slide for it, of Luke 22. Do I? No, okay. Luke 22, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is saying to his followers, This is the last meal I'm going to eat with you. And he took bread... He gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, but I think this is where it actually gets really cool. If you were to read through a Passover Seder, like I said, it's very structured. There's about 50 pages worth of instructions and prayers. I have always wondered, what's the significance of Jesus giving thanks and breaking bread? And what's the significance of them drinking the wine after the meal? Because normally, you wouldn't wait till after the meal to drink wine. You'd probably drink wine with your meal. I've always wondered that. I don't know if anyone else has ever been curious about that. When you read through a Passover Seder, and and today, the the Jewish communities that worship Jesus as the Messiah, the Passover Seder is really cool because it's filled with rich symbolism. And what happens over time is the Passover meal, um, there's different interpretations. So there's these rhythms that develop, but then people have different interpretations. At the beginning of the meal, you take three pieces of matzah, which is the unleavened bread. This is matzah that we have here. It's gluten-free. You take three pieces of matzah, and in the second piece of matzah, you break it. This is in the Passover Seder. You break the second piece of matzah, and you wrap it in cloth, and you hide it in the house for kids to find and you eat it later for dessert, which is not a very sweet dessert. But you break the second matzah. And so what develops over time is this uh, interpretation of what the three matzahs are. So one interpretation is that the three matzahs are supposed to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs. And they, they break the second matzah because it's meant to symbolize the binding of Isaac in the story that we just read. So imagine yourself seated at the table with Jesus, at that Passover meal, and you think that the second matzah is Isaac being bound. And Jesus takes it, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Imagine how that fills your mind with, like, all sorts of emotions, all sorts of thoughts, being like, what? It completely reinterprets their expectation, and then we see that Jesus is actually making a statement about what he is going to do for them. 
Now, interestingly, there's another interpretation of the three matzahs, that it's Israel, the priests, and the Levites. And in a, in a, a non-Messianic worldview, it doesn't really make sense why the priest's matzah would be broken. But it does make sense if you're like the author of Hebrews, who calls Jesus our great high priest. And it's the priest, Jesus, whose body is broken on our behalf. Now, the bit about the, the cups of wine. In a Passover Seder, there's five cups of wine that correspond to five promises that God made in Exodus 6 of what he's going to do for Israel. So we're going to read that passage. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That's cup number one, the cup of being brought out. Cup number two, I will free you from being slaves. So the freedom from slavery is cup one and two. And in a Passover Seder, you drink cups one and two before the meal. And then you drink cups three and four after the meal, and you don't drink cup number five. But one and two you drink beforehand, and then I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. Redeeming, the cup of redemption is cup number three. With an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people. That's cup number four. Cup number five comes from verse eight, uh, when uh, they'll be given the land. And to this day, you don't drink cup number five because the view is that the Jewish people are still exiled from the land. So you drink cups number one and two before the supper and cups three and four afterwards. So when Jesus, in Luke, takes the cup after the supper, he's taking the cup of redemption. So in the Jewish mindset, they're thinking this is the cup that signifies both how God brought Israel out of slavery originally, but also looking forward to a day when God will fully redeem his people. And Jesus takes that cup and says, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. So just like with the breaking of the bread, he totally reinterprets what his listeners had in mind when they're looking at the cup of redemption. And Jesus says, the cup of redemption is pointing to me and my death and my blood and this new covenant that I am making. So when we come to the table, we not only remember Jesus' sacrifice, but we also see how the redemption and the hope of God's people is totally fulfilled in Jesus. What generations and generations waited for is found in Christ, in his sacrifice, in his body, and in his blood. So when we come to the table, we come to Jesus just like his first disciples did, and he hands you the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he hands you the cup and says, this cup is my blood for you. So when we come to the table, we're coming like his first disciples in that meal. Which really leads us into the third theme that I just want to briefly take a look at, which is this idea of the Messiah's banquet. So in Isaiah 25, Isaiah points to a day when God will set all things right when all of the the evil and sin and brokenness and death in the world is wiped away and all things are made new. And Isaiah looks forward to that day and describes what's going to happen. And it's kind of like the Passover meal, but it's this, this cosmic victory celebration. Isaiah says it this way, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a, re, a, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So the promise for God's people, which is an expectation of the coming of Jesus, is that a day will come when God will do away with evil, and he will do away with death, and he will do away with enemies like death, and he will be so intimately present with his people that he will wipe away the tears from our eyes, which is a beautiful, beautiful promise. And it's a promise that actually gets picked up by Jesus as he tells parables about banquets and inviting all sorts of people to banquets. If you remember through the parable series, we taught on some of those. Or Jesus tells parables of wedding feasts and how all sorts of people are invited to wedding feasts. In the book of Revelation, the author, John, gets a picture of what that day will be like. And he describes it this way. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So this banquet is described as a wedding party that you're invited to. And we look forward to that day. And we long for that day. And in the meantime, we participate in that banquet symbolically here at the Lord's table. Because when we come to the table here, we remember what Christ has done in his sacrifice, what he is doing in our redeeming and as our redemption, and what he will do in the fully new creation to come. So let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning, which is why is communion the central piece of what we do? And it also begs the question, why do we do it every single week? Because not all churches do it every single week. Well, the simple answer is that that, the table, is what shaped the early followers of Jesus. So from day one, when we get the descriptions of the early church in Acts 2, what they did was they gathered together under the apostles' teaching for prayers, for the breaking of bread. And this breaking of bread was a common meal that is generally understood to be communion. And then later in the New Testament, we get these examples of love feasts in the book of James. And that's a common meal that, that the believers would eat together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians, Paul corrects abuses of the church in Corinth because what was going on in Corinth was the church was eating common meals together and the rich folks were getting full and getting drunk and the poor folks were being neglected. And Paul corrects those abuses and describes how that full meal was actually the Lord's table, was actually communion. So from the very first days of the church, these full-scale meals were what the church gathered around. But over time, what happened very early in church history is that full meals became less and less common, but these two elements remained, the bread and the cup. And so to this day, around the world, churches celebrate communion and the Lord's table this way with just the bread and the cup. But as a side note, this is why we try and eat together as much as possible as a church. 
This is why we try and eat together, why we've been doing the, the barbecues on Sunday nights. That's why we do the day at the lake. That's why we eat together in missional communities often. We want to do communal meals as much as possible. And many churches celebrate communion every single week, and some do it less regularly. But we do it every week because, as I mentioned, we see the bread and the cup as this, this central expression of what Jesus did. And we do it every week because originally that's what the church did. That's what they did from day one. They gathered together around this table. And so when you or I miss a Sunday gathering, we miss out on all kinds of things, right? We miss out on seeing people that we know and love. We miss out on listening to hopefully a teaching that is encouraging and makes us think and and challenges us to, to follow Jesus better. We miss out on getting to sing together. But when we are away on a Sunday, the number one thing that we miss out on is being able to receive directly from God, especially in the communion table. So I hope that one of the ramifications of this Sunday is us realizing that when we don't receive communion, we're actually missing out on a very special opportunity to receive directly from God. We are reminded when we come to the table of the things that I talked about, of Jesus' death as sacrifice and as his uh, redemption of us and ongoing redeeming of us, and this promise and hope of the age to come when all things will be made new. So we come to the table with all of that rich symbolism. But here's another beautiful part of the whole deal that just has to be said. God alone is the one who's done this. He is the one who made the sacrifice. He is the one who's redeemed us. He is the one who has invited us all in. He is the one who prepares a table where we can actually meet with him And he prepares a table where we can sit together with every tribe and nation and tongue, all sorts of people at a a table of fellowship with him and with all sorts of people. And these are God's acts that he has invited us to come and meet him in. So one last bit, just as we transition to actually do and participate what I've been talking about. I mentioned that Paul writes to the church in Corinth to correct abuses. Really, there's two abuses that he's correcting. One is that, uh, like I said, the rich folks are getting full and eating before the poor folks and they're getting drunk at the meals, which is not a good idea to do it like a church barbecue. And what he says is stop doing that, essentially. But the other thing that he corrects, uh, he talks about receiving the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. And there's all sorts of thoughts out there about what that means, but really the main point is this. There is a right way and a wrong way to come to the table. Now, don't get me wrong. Every single person in this room and outside this room is invited to God's table. Every single person is invited to come. And that is a beautiful promise because we can come and we can receive from Jesus. But there is, an, there is a wrong way. There's an inappropriate way to come to the table. And so there's some preparation that goes into approaching God at his fellowship table as he hands you the bread and the cup. And historically, this has just taken the form of confession before you come to the table. We don't, we've mentioned this before, but we, we don't talk about it every single week. But what we want to do is make a habit of, of preparing ourselves to come to the table, preparing ourselves to come and worship God, preparing ourselves to come to the table. And so that's what, just what we're going to do for the next little bit as I invite uh, the musicians back up, we're going to play some music, but we're going to pray for a little bit of time, and I'm just going to make that space for confession, 
to pray to God. Just express the things that are in your heart silently where you are. And then we'll continue in worship by coming forward to the table.